Wonderful. Well, my name's Tom. I'm another pastor here, elder at the church. Another warm welcome to you. Summer has come. <laughs> Hallelujah. It's great. Praise God. Remember last week I asked you to pray for Derek and Joan Reynolds to get a house. They're moving here from, uh, from Essex and they have placed a, uh, an offer on a house and it's been accepted. Yay, fantastic. God is doing wonderful things. Also tonight, if you're not an envisioner, I'd love to see your beautiful faces at the uh, inter-church prayer meeting at the United Reformed Church, 6 o'clock, the Global Night of Prayer. There's going to be hundreds and hundreds of us praying for the city, for the nation, and for the nations. So please do come, 6 o'clock, URC. It's going to be outstanding. Well, if you have a Bible, turn to the Gospel of John and chapter 1. As a church, last week we kicked off our new series entitled Drenched. And we're looking at the Bible's uh, enthusiasm about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And I mentioned that last week you could summarize the whole of the Bible uh, with the presence of the presence, right at the beginning, the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. Then the removal of the presence, about 600 BC, when the people of God continued to sin and God removed his presence. And then about 2,000 years ago, when Jesus Christ came to earth, the reason he was so excited about the coming of the Holy Spirit was that it was the beginning of the end, in the best sense. It was the beginning of the return of the presence of God. And in John 16, we looked at the remarkable words of Jesus who said, in fact, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I go away, then the Holy Spirit, the Helper, will come. And so we've been trying to unpack what on earth Jesus meant. How could it be true to say that actually it's to the world's advantage that Jesus, who was and is God, who was on planet Earth, how could it possibly be to the world's advantage that he would leave planet Earth? And the only way it could be to the advantage is if this person, the Holy Spirit that he was talking about, was fairly amazing. So in the next few weeks, we're looking at the person of the Holy Spirit. I'm hoping to demolish, to smack in the face some wrong teaching, some wrong understanding about the Holy Spirit. We live in times where there is a little confusion at times in the world, in the Christian world. And I want to just let Scripture, Scripture teach us about what our expectations should be about the person of the Spirit. And I think it's true to say that it's very possible that we can be comfortable with Jesus Christ as the one who deals with our sin. But we can often not realize that the Bible tells us we should have a second equally high expectation of Jesus Christ. Let's read John chapter 1, verse 29. These are the words we're going to read of a guy called John the Baptist, who was one of the most amazing leaders of the day. He had a massive following, and the last of the Old Testament prophets. The next day, he, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So this is, this is very significant. Don't, don't tune out, okay? Function one, if I might put it that way, of Jesus Christ was to be the Lamb of God. What on earth do I mean by that? In the Old Testament, when you sinned, the way that you got right with God, this is putting it very simply, was that you found a lamb, your best lamb. And in a way to express your seriousness of sorrow, for, being, uh, for sinning against God, you offered your lamb. And the priest looked at the lamb, and if the lamb was really brilliant, really perfect, 
Then they said, okay, we're going to slaughter the lamb as an expression of your seriousness before God. And you were, as it were, restored before God. So in that image, now it wasn't really about how many times you said sorry. All the attention was on the lamb. Is the lamb good enough? And if the lamb was good enough, praise God, your, your sorrow was accepted and the lamb sacrifice meant that you could approach God again with boldness. That was what was happening throughout the Old Testament in very simple, simple uh, uh, language. And so when the Bible says that John saw Jesus as the lamb, this was the, 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 the image of Jesus as the one who would take away the sin of the world. He would be the perfect sacrifice. And he would be the one that meant that anyone from the day that Jesus was on planet earth even to the day he returns. If, and you may be here a non-Christian and you may not realize but actually that you need to get right with God and you can say, Jesus, I want to know forgiveness. And Jesus as the lamb, the one who takes away the sin of the world, today offers free forgiveness. And most of the Christian world will be very happy with Jesus as the lamb. Amen? Jesus is the one who deals with the sin. Fantastic. Amazing. Through his death, taking the sin of the world upon him, and then his resurrection, proving that he was and is God, we can be completely confident. Jesus is the lamb. Okay. Very, very important. But then, then John says something that we could often overlook. Verse 32. John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him, on Jesus. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who, now read this with me, who baptizes, out loud, who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So we see here, John the Baptist presents to the world not just that Jesus will be the Lamb, but he will be the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. Two functions, not just one. And I think it's true to say that most of the Christian world is happy with part one, but often when we start to think about the second function of Jesus as the one who would baptize in the Holy Spirit, often the world, the Christian world certainly, can get a little bit confused. And so we would have imagined then that if these words of John the Baptist boomed out into the world, that then we would have heard loads and loads about the coming of the Spirit from Jesus, right? If he's the baptizer in the Spirit, when we read the Gospels, we should have seen nothing but Jesus talking about the Spirit. But actually what we see is, is not actually that much from Jesus. Turn to John 7. This is one of the few times where Jesus really talks about the Spirit. Verse 37, he says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were yet, sorry, were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So you see, if you'd been there that day when Jesus stood up and said, Anyone thirsty? Anyone thirsty? Come to me and drink. You would go, Woohoo! Yeah, right. And you would have run to Jesus and he said, Not yet. I'm not yet glorified. Not yet. That's what it's saying. He was kind of giving a, a sneak preview of what was to come. He was, as it were, picking up the words of John the Baptist about him being the baptizer as well as the lamb, and he's almost whetting the appetite of the people in that age. And so when you read the Gospels, there's like this glorious tension that builds. 
The whole of the Old Testament, as I said last week, was pointing towards the time when the Spirit would come. And when Jesus was on planet Earth, and we read throughout the Gospels, he's, he's hinting, but he's saying, when I'm glorified, then, then, John's prophecy about me baptizing the world in the Holy Spirit, then it will come true. Turn to Acts chapter 1, and we see the same glorious tension being built up. It's like a dam that's getting ready to burst. Verse 4. And this is Jesus, some of his last words. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. This is to his disciples. But to wait for the promise of the Father, which he has said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized. And the word baptized just means drenched with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. The disciples then changed the subject, gloriously, stupidly, to be honest with you. And in verse 8, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Do you see, Jesus is like, it's so close, you can almost smell it. The ache of the ages, the ache of the Old Testament of God, will you restore your presence? Jesus is saying, we're so close. He's gone to the cross by this point. He's been raised to life, defeating sin and death. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And now, I'm quite excited about this, just to warn you, okay? It's going to be one of those mornings, okay? He's now saying, guys, you've, you've understood me as the lamb. You're justified by grace. You are now righteous before me. The end of John, it talks about him breathing the spirit of them. I believe that's when they got regenerated, when they got born again. They're justified. Jesus, as the lamb, has been having effect in their life. But now he says, you've just got to wait until I am glorified and ascended on high. And then, and then, the promise, the promise that then Jesus the baptizer, the promise of John 7, which is when he is glorified, then the spirit will be poured out. He's like, wait, we're almost there. And they're like, okay. So what do we see? They're pretty excited. They go off and they start praying. They pray and they pray and they pray. And then we see what can only describe as an explosion of power. Say power. power. Pronounce the P, people. Power. power. He, an explosion of power upon a normal people, a bit like the 300 or so here today. An explosion of power upon them. And the whole of the book of Acts is a glorious, explicit account of what happens when people get drenched in the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, if you want to understand the Bible, the Old Testament is all pointing towards the time when the Spirit will be poured out, when Jesus the Lamb and Jesus the Baptizer will come into glorious fulfillment. If you want to understand the epistles, the letters that Paul and Peter and others wrote, it's about... It's pointing backwards. It's assuming that all those churches in Corinth and everywhere else have already been baptised in the Spirit. And often, actually, when you read the epistles, they're dealing with almost the problem that come when you've got churches that are so ablaze with the power of God that are almost going a bit off the rails, like in Corinth, where they're all speaking in tongues non-stop. Is that the problem of the Western church now? No, it's not. But the book of Acts, generally, the book of Acts is this glorious, unique window where we learn actually what happened. That is massive. Do you understand that the whole of the Bible is pointing to the coming of the Spirit? The epistles are, pointing to, are spoken to churches that are assuming they've been drenched in the Spirit and often dealing with the issues that come out of that. 
And we're about to read five occurrences. We're going to read them super quick, just to whet your appetite. And we're going to look at what happens when people get drenched in the Spirit. What happens? Because you can often, and I've experienced it. I remember when I was a Christian, I saw people being... <laughs> what, what? When I first became a Christian, so all right. There you go. When I first became a Christian, I knew I was justified. I knew I was a Christian, and I'd see people going, Whoa! and I'd be like, wow, what? That look, they're all wobbly and shaky. What's that? That looks amazing. Now, don't miss this, because lots of us are casual to this. That can happen. It can happen. But it is not. Say it is not. It is not what it is about, ultimately, as we're about to learn. Okay, God can do what he wants. And when we sometimes, like I, we look at it and go, hmm, that doesn't happen to me, I'm going to be angry with God. When we let that creep in, it can pollute our relationship with God. We're going to see biblical things that happen, okay? And we're going to say to ourselves, are those things present in my life, okay? We're not going to go, what have I seen in wacky situations that are maybe God just, people just enjoying God, but but they may not be actually necessarily particularly scriptural, you know? And actually also, you can be someone who wobbles and shakes and falls on the ground and everything else, and you can be a right old sinner. Yeah? Maturity has nothing to do with that. You can have people who wobble and shake and fall on the ground, and they go off and sin their hearts out. It's true, to be honest with you. It's true. So I just want to nail that today, and I want us to have a biblical understanding, because this is too precious. Do you understand? This, you know, and the enemy loves to rob the church of these things. He loves to do it. He loves to just go, well, I'm going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. All this baptism in the spirit rubbish. No, understand. It is the most beautiful thing. And it is clear what it is. And we look at external stuff and internal signs of what happens. And this is my aim. Whether you would sit here and think, well, I've certainly been drenched in the spirit of God. Whether you are someone like that, or whether you're sitting here thinking a bit nervous, thinking, oh, blimey, I hate it when we talk about these things. I don't know if this has happened to me. Put those thoughts to the side, okay? Because when you read about what, what happens when, this, when, when the Spirit of God comes on a people, it should humble us. And it should mean that all of us, who even if we think we've really encountered God, when we look at what happens, and when we meet men and women of God, who, to be honest with you, are 10,000 times further ahead in God than us, it should humble us. And, and all of us should come away thinking, well, I might have experienced X, Y, and Z, but I want to know all that God has for me. Do you understand that? If there's any hierarchy that comes out of this, then that is not of God. God doesn't want, he wants a holy, humble hunger that we would say, until our church, until my life is like this book, I want more. Okay? Just say more. That's the summary. It's about more. It's wanting more of God. So let's zip through five occurrences. First of all, Pentecost, chapter one, sorry, chapter two, verse one. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came a sound. There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled. Say all filled. With the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. 
And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, that in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. He carries on. And then verse 32, very important verse. This Jesus that God raised up and of, all that, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father, look at this, the same phrase, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, that's Jesus, he has now poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So what do we see here? What are the biblical signs when the Spirit of God drenches a people? First of them is that we see here a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It's extraordinary. That's why Peter here says something that you can see and you can hear. And I think what we're going to see here today is that the biblical weight seems to lead us to the conclusion that when people generally are encountered by the Spirit of God, in one form or another, the world knows about it. That it isn't just normally just some very quiet little thing in our hearts. Often when we become born again, it's an internal, quiet thing that happens. But what we're going to see again and again is that there are somewhat dramatic things that happen when the living God comes crashing onto earth, as it were, by the Spirit, and causes people to become drenched in the Spirit of God. So first of all, we see a sound like a mighty rushing wind. We're then going to see, it says the tongues of fire were resting upon their heads. Anyone ever seen that in their life? I haven't. I would love to see it. I, would, I know that in other parts of the world, there have been well-documented accounts where this sort of thing has actually been seen by people who aren't potty, but are reliable men and women who said, oh, wow, when God comes, extraordinary things happen. We then see in verse 4, this is an important one, that they speak in tongues. Now, the amazing thing about this is that they speak in tongues that are clearly specific, real languages. All that long list that I read out. Now, that still happens. That still does happen. Where people, inspired by the Holy Spirit, are able to speak in languages that are genuinely other languages. It's utterly incredible. But I think perhaps what's more common is a language that is inspired that we might call a heavenly language. That isn't exactly a world national language nowadays, but is still nonetheless a language between you and God that bubbles up. And it's a gift of the Spirit. When the Spirit comes upon us, often this happens. I wouldn't want to push it to say that if you don't speak in tongues, then there's something wrong. But I think Scripture does say we should probably expect it. He loves to give good, give good gifts. And this is a very, very common one that we see when people are drenched in the Spirit. It was wonderful a few months ago at a prayer meeting. We were just praying away and the Spirit of God just fell. Uh, when I talk about that, I mean, we use language to try and describe it, but it was just the atmosphere completely changed. And uh, afterwards, a, a little while later, I was talking to a friend of mine and she just said she was glued to the floor. Such was the weight of God's presence. But then she said she found herself... <coughs> Just this torrent of a language bubbling out of her, of her mouth. And I think it was the first time ever she'd spoken in tongues. And it was simply through being drenched with lots of other people in the unseen, it's invisible, but real presence of God. 
It's like, a, it's like a, an excitement, like a child who can't even talk properly but wants to just express our love to God. That's what tongues are. And I know it can seem strange, but actually it's the most amazing thing. Who here sometimes struggle, struggles to express in English or whatever language that you speak is your native language, your love to God? Anyone here ever struggle with that? Of course we do. We're talking to the creator of the universe and we are little created ants. Of course we're going to struggle. So it's actually wonderfully logical, as it were, that God would give us a gift. And today when we pray, I'm going to ask again that God will give gifts of tongues to many of you here um, with great confidence. We also see uh, at the end of verse 13, I just love this, others mocking said they are filled with new wine. It's nine in the morning and yet they seem drunk. They do seem intoxicated. And you see... Again, I wouldn't want to push this, that this always has to happen. But often, when the Spirit of God, when Jesus floods and baptizes people with his Spirit, you know, it just creates a kind of intoxicated state that is wonderful. I remember about two years ago, uh, well, again, one of our prayer meetings, there was just a season where people were just going there to pray to God. And they just were getting ambushed by heaven, as it were, again and again. And people were just, just receiving and being intoxicated with, this, with the Spirit of God to the extent where they were gloriously incapacitated and unable to actually do the serious work of praying because they were just enjoying God. And this is what the people think. They see these, these Christians and they think, they're mad, they're drunk. And Peter says, no, 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 no. You mustn't mock. You've got to understand that what God is doing here is he is pouring out his glorious joy. You see... We sometimes in the West, we don't get this because to be honest with you, we can be such a miserable lot of people. We are so often. And we have to, we talk about joy. We just, we just think, oh, you know, joy. It is a profound thing. You see, look at 1 Peter chapter 1. In there, you see, Peter says, he talks about an unspeakable joy to the churches that he's writing to. He says, your joy is unspeakable. And we can say, some people said, oh, Peter, you know, this is just for a few Christians occasionally, super-duper Christians, you know, or just extroverts. But think, Peter is writing to a group of churches he's never even met. And yet for Peter, it is just an assumption that if you're a Christian, it means you are drenched in the presence of God, which means you have joy unspeakable. For him, it's just, well, if you're a Christian, that is who you are. Now, is that something that generally when the world looks at the church, they think is who we are marked by? Often not. We're just like the rest of the world. And we say, yeah, I know the living God. And yet our lives are often filled with just as much whinging and sadness and other things that, to be honest with you, make people go, hmm, that's interesting. I don't believe God wants that for us. Yeah, there are times, of course, where life is very hard. And actually, we, you know, it's a season for everything, Ecclesiastes says. But our default position in God is that we are those that by grace receive joy. And so they seem intoxicated. And then we see in verse 14, another external evidence, boldness. Say boldness. Boldness. Again, these are things that we can kind of look at and go, well, I'm kind of bold. I've got that one. Yeah, I'm sort of bold occasionally. But actually, this is, this is a world-changing boldness. This is Peter, you know, Mr. Denying Christ a few moments earlier, suddenly is standing up in front of thousands of people fearlessly explaining what is happening. This is maybe one of the clearest, or well, certainly one of the clearest, if not the clearest marks of being drenched in the Spirit, is that you are suddenly, your fear of man, 
Your sense of holding on to your reputation just, it just gets forgotten. As you are just clothed in an awareness of his profound love for you, it gives you a boldness to do things you could never do. It's amazing. I've got to read this story. I had so many emails in the last few weeks about the Spirit. If people knew it, like, oh, I've got to tell you this one. This is one from a person in the church. She said, I was um, at the lad's house on a Sunday evening about to go home. They could tell I was worrying about the week ahead as the previous week was very, was very tricky. So they said, can I pray for you? Immediately, the Holy Spirit came very powerfully. I felt just so different. I'd had a week of feeling frustrated, and I know that faith isn't a feeling, but I'm also glad when he can sense his spirit in that way. We just stayed in the presence of God for such a long time, and in the end I thought, how on earth am I going to ride my bike home? As I was biking home, feeling amazing, a man called out to me and asked me for a cigarette. It was pretty late and dark, and normally I would have just biked a bit faster. However, I stopped, and I, and I said something like, you don't need that, you need Jesus. He looked startled and said he did need it, actually, because he just had a pint. I said he didn't need that. He just needed Jesus. He asked of me if I was on crack. And I laughed. <laughs> Love it. And I laughed and I said, I'd just been with friends praying. He looked amazed and said, if you don't mind, can I ask what you were praying about? And I told him that I'd been completely worried about the week. But they'd prayed and now I wasn't. He said, that's amazing. And then I asked him if he'd remembered ever having an encounter with Jesus. And he said he thought he might have had as a child. And I asked if I could pray for him to encounter Jesus there and then. He said, well, I really love that. So I stood there and prayed really loud. And all these really big prayers came out of my mouth. I could see that God was moving on him. I then finished, told him how he could get to church to find out more and rode, him, rode off, leaving him there looking rather stunned. It was amazing. And it really challenged me to think how different my life would be if I were constantly drenched in the presence of God. It's so true. As the Spirit comes, it's just, you become bold. I know as we do healing on the streets, I go there to serve Canterbury, but I'm standing there with thousands of people who don't believe in God saying, do you want us to pray for your leg to grow or whatever, or to be healed? And there is a boldness that is totally not from me. I am such a coward. I am so fearful of men and women. But actually, the Spirit enables us to do that, which is impossible. And when we're drenched in the Spirit of God in our workplaces, in our schools, in our universities, with your friends and your families, God wants to equip us with a boldness by the Spirit. When I was before the council just two months ago, with lots of scary-looking people, just talking about us as a church and what we do, I felt the presence of God in a remarkable way, and I could watch myself talking confidently about Jesus without even flinching, thinking, this is, am this is amazing, and it's not me, it's the Spirit of God drenching me in the moment. God's never called us to change a city or a world or a nation without the presence of the Spirit. It's meant to be easy. It's meant to be Him upon us, us enjoying Him, and out of the overflow and being intoxicated with Him, we can't help but talk about Him. That is Jesus glorified. Are we thirsty? Therefore, John 7 is a promise that for every single Christian here today, He doesn't say, no, 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 not now. He says, yes, come and drink. And so we see this amazing thing. And therefore we see, not surprising, the thousands say, well, I want in on this. Peter's preached this, um, this sermon, and in verse 33, 38, sorry, he says this, Therefore, repent, be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone, listen to this, whom the Lord our God 
called to himself. If you're a Christian, that means you have been called to him. And that means this, is that the gift of the Spirit, and I think it's fairly obvious that when Peter's talking about the gift of the Spirit in that context, he's talking about the extraordinary things that are happening that is meaning thousands of people are going, what on earth is happening? He's saying, if you've been called, if you're a Christian, then this promise is for you. He is wanting to just flood us with confidence here today. No matter where you think you are on the Holy Spirit scale, today he wants to say there's more. There's so much more. This is a promise. A promise. You know, when God promises something, no matter how you feel, is irrelevant. You trust in the promise. You trust in his goodness and his character. And he says here, repent, be baptised, you'll be forgiven. I, the Lamb of God, will do his wonderful work in your life and then you'll receive the gift of the Spirit. Then you will be de-wrenched. You will be flooded. You will be immersed and wonderfully intoxicated in the presence of God. And we see that thousands respond. And what do we see? Look at this. From verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favour, excuse me, with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those being saved. I wish we had longer because those few verses describe a people who are utterly transformed by the power of God. Just look at some of the words. They are devoted. You know, they don't have to be coerced to come to a prayer meeting. There is a profound, spirit-drenched, spirit-breathing devotion to fellowship. You see, often when you read about people being drenched in the Spirit of God, like with John Wesley, when you read about John Wesley, it says in, in May of the year when he became a Christian, he was reading Romans And it says, my heart was strangely warmed. And that is the time where he knew that he was justified. Praise God, he gets born again. But then in January of the next year, it's three in the morning. He's in Fetter Lane with people like Whitfield. And they're praying at three in the morning, as we all do. He's praying away. And then it just says, the power of the living God came upon them all with such incredible ferocity. He said, I was both overwhelmed at my my fragility, my smallness, but also the love of of God. It's one of the classic things, is when you get drenched in the Spirit of God, you just suddenly know in here. Your brain can't comprehend it, but how the God of the universe, who sustains Pluto and Jupiter and Mars, loves you. He's wild about you. Even though you just deserve judgment, he forgives you and he drenches you in the deepest assurance of his love for you. It's what happens, and that's why they are devoted to fellowship. They don't need systems to help them get to know each other. They're just devoted to one another. Because when you've had your soul melted, knowing that God is passionate about you, you just have this weird love for people. I have to say, 12 years ago, before I was a Christian, I was so hard-hearted and just judged people left, right and centre. In the last 12 years, one of the most, I think, clearest signs of God changing my life has been I just love people. I love odd people. I love normal people. I love people in every different form. I love young people, old people. I just love people. You know, that is why it's the greatest commandment. Love God and love people. 
And do you know what? Most of us go, I can love God. Yeah. Then we learn to love people. We're like, hmm, a little bit strange, my cell group. You know, and actually, <laughs> just, I have a wonderful cell group, by the way, just to say they're the best. But if we're honest, at times, there's people we find, now you see, we can just go, oh, you know, it's just one. No, no, it's the greatest command. Do you understand that? It's the greatest command is to love God, not too hard because he's amazing, then love people. It's all kind of one. And actually that's because the Spirit of God drenches us and when you know that you are loved when at your absolute worst, you are still profoundly loved, it changes you. And it means you can love people in your workplace who hate you. You can do it. You can love them. Because, because it's not based on a human approval. It's just this amazing constant flowing of God's love upon you. It is mind-blowing. God wants this city changed, not through Christians bashing people with the Bible, but people loving them, speaking words of truth, yes, but words of love and humility. And that only comes when we are drenched. Say drenched. Drenched. I don't mean dipped. Say no dipped. No dipped. It's not allowed. Drenched in the... Thank you. Well done. Drenched in the presence of God. This, do you see what I'm saying? The Bible won't allow us to just, oh, I'll have a little dip. There we go. Woohoo! Oh, little dip of this. But no, no, he wants to drench us in these days. He really does. He, it's an absolute orthodox, might I say, biblical view of what it is to be a Christian. It really means that. Goodness, we're going to be here all day. Anyway, so we see devotion, we see prayer, we see awe. Look at this awe came upon them. I want awe. Is the church full of awe? Are we genuinely a people? Like Isaiah, when he catches a glimpse of God, he just goes, wow, it's me. You see, this is this amazing kind of mix of incredible, you know, the spirit in us cries, Abba, Father. And yet, also at the same time, this is the creator. You see, this isn't just some little power thing. Ooh, get plugged in. It's not about, no, no. This is about reverence for the God of the universe. Awe upon them. Awe. Boy, do we need that in these days. All came from the signs and wonders, giving. Oh, just their attitude to money changes. Stingebag Tom Shaw, the only way that's ever going to change is by me exchanging the God of money for another God, the true God, the wonderful person of the Spirit, drenching me and suddenly making me go, well, actually, I used to just really care about money. I used to really think I had to control money. I had to be secure through having big savings and all that stuff. And actually now I know that God loves me. And actually he calls me to be radically generous. It's the, uh, see, that is huge. We could be here all day on that one. Because the world sees money as its God. So when they see these people who are radically drenched and they go, to be honest with you, we just giving it all away. Because we know where we're going. We can't outgive God as we give. He loves it because it shows our total trust in him. That's always going to be a challenge for us. And a glorious, exciting adventure. Amen? The ad Amen? Amen? Yeah, you're going quiet on that one. Adventure in the Holy Spirit of giving. It's glorious. And you just see here, on God, and God added uh, 3,000. It's just like growth just happens in this context. It's not like a big deal. It's just, well, of course. You don't focus on the growth. You actually focus on encountering the living God, loving each other, and then the world goes, I want in. This is incredible. Okay, so part one. We're going to go much quicker through the other ones. Acts 8. Acts 8, we're going to whiz through these ones. Now the gospel goes north. Stay with me, people. Now the gospel goes north to Samaria. Okay? S S Philip has preached the gospel in Samaria. People have got saved. Verse 12. 
of chapter 8. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. Now Simon was a sorcerer. He's like David Blaine, okay? He was like the big magician guy everyone thought was amazing. Even he believed. And after being baptised, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. But when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore. Now this is very important for us. Look what's happened. Already, Jesus as the Lamb, i.e. Jesus, the Gospel, getting justified freely by grace, and Jesus the baptizer have already got separated. Did you see that? Samaria has heard about Jesus the justifier, they've got saved, but they haven't heard about Jesus the baptizer. That, I believe, is what many in this country have grown up with. And I know myself. That's what I grew up with. I heard about Jesus. He rose, so he died for my sins, and he rose again. Whoa! And it stops there. Jesus has saved me. They haven't heard about the fit that Jesus then is ascended on high. He's now glorified, and as John 7 says now, his second glorious role is to pour out the Spirit and to baptise those who have been justified and clothe them with his power. Do you see that? Samaria is a very accurate picture, I think, of often the British expression of what it is to be a Christian. Part one without part two. But gloriously, Peter and John here come to the rescue. Hooray! Peter and John come in and they explain to them that now Jesus is on high, it is time for them to be drenched with his Holy Spirit. But look, we see first of all here that there is power. Simon, looking on, says, wow, there is such power here, I want to buy it. Now, I don't really know what that means. But I do know this, is that when people get drenched in the Spirit of God, often it can be that there is a type of power that is just almost visible. It's just extraordinary. I don't even fully know how to describe it. But there's something here that we, in Scripture, it says that when they got drenched in the Spirit, that someone looking on can see that there is power. It isn't just small, some small private thing inside. There is a visible power. But he wrongly, he wrongly says, I want to buy this power. Now, this is huge because I think sometimes when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we can think, you know, would I like some help in my daily life? Yes. Would I like some power to help me to be happy? Yes. Would I like a bit of power to do X, Y, and Z? And we can say yes, yes, yes. But not understand what Simon didn't understand here was that the Holy Spirit, he isn't, now don't miss this, he isn't a power to just help us in our life. He is God that we need to repent before as non-Christians to become Christians and then spend our lives actually ongoingly repenting when we sin, that he is a God to be followed. Do you understand that? There's a huge difference. Because often when we think about the Spirit, we hear about it, we go, yeah, that'd be pretty good. Well, if he, uh, he wants to help me, you can, uh, you can you know, give me a bit of power, Holy Spirit. And the focus is actually on us and our lives and him helping us 
Whereas the gospel calls us to humbly repent and to say, actually, for me to believe that the Spirit of God could be in me and clothe me, me just a sinful person, is mind-blowing. Do you see, there's a humility here that we often miss. And I want to say this. This was my stumbling block. I became a Christian 12 years ago. But then for two or three years, when I saw people, as it were, receiving from God, I, I, I actually got to a point where I actually got quite angry at God because I wasn't experiencing God in this way. I wasn't experiencing God in this way and I found myself a bit like Simon. I was saying, God, give me this power. I want this power. But actually, when on one Sunday I came to church and John Hopkins was preached, excellently, of course, as always, he preached and I felt I'd had a bad week. I'd started drinking far too much, smoking far too much, doing things I shouldn't have done. I felt a profound conviction. Okay? I came forward at the end of the meeting. I said, John, you've got to pray for me. I just feel really, really, I just know I've really been grieving God this week, been doing lots of things I shouldn't be doing. And he said, no problem. And this was the thing. For the first time, really, I actually really repented. And it was a gift of the God. He had just shown me my unworthiness. And it wasn't very pleasant, but it was a wonderful gift. Now, as I repented to John, man to man, I said, I've just got to be honest with you about this. He then started to pray for me. And for the first time in my life, the power of the living God fell on me in the kind of way that we've been reading about. I just went from, I knew that God loved me, to just encountering me. And I was just intoxicated with just a passion for God. And from that day onwards, my life went from being trodling along in first gear as a Christian to into sixth gear, you know, just propelled forwards. But this is the key. For me, it was about repentance. Is that before that, I've been saying, Lord, I have a right to this stuff here. I have a right to this stuff that I see. And I was actually overly focusing on some of the external wobbling and shaking, which is nothing to do with it. Have we read anything about wobbling or shaking, people? No. That's what I was focusing on. And when God showed me, actually, I needed to humbly repent before the Creator, that was the moment he sneaked up on me gloriously and drenched me with his presence. It may be for some of you here today, actually, God just wants to gently ask you to repent. Not to say, Lord, I'm holding you to ransom, but to say, Lord, there's a humble hunger in here for these things, for boldness, for tongues, for prophecy, for a deep assurance yeah, those are the things that we're seeing, not so much the external phenomena that come out of Lakeland. Okay, so we see here uh, in chap Acts chapter 8, repentance is key. Chapter 9, we're going to zoom, zoom, zoom. Acts chapter 9, Saul. Saul was a bad guy, boo. He was a Christian killer, okay? He was a nasty man. And he's off on his horse to, to Damascus to go and to kill some Christians. And yes, Jesus, boof, back of the neck, he just appears in glory, and just suddenly says in verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Rise and enter the city and you'll be told what to do. Saul gets converted. This is the time when he then talks about his testimony later on in different parts of Acts. He talks about this incident being the time where he becomes a Christian. In Acts chapter 26, for example, he doesn't even mention the second bit we're about to read. This is the moment where he becomes a Christian. 
God, in his infinite wisdom, makes him blind for three days and he's stumbling around just to probably humble him. And then we read a bit later on, Ananias, in verse 17, another guy who God speaks to, Ananias departed from his house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. So what we see here is a three-day gap between him getting saved and him being drenched in the Holy Spirit. If you'd said to Saul, what's your story? He would have said, well, I was riding along and I saw Jesus and I realised I didn't believe, you know, I'd been believing a lie and Jesus was really the Messiah. But then for three days I was blundering around blind until this nice guy, Ananias, came and prayed for me. He laid hands on me and the Spirit of God clothed me with power. For him, there was a bit of a gap, as there was in my life and in some of our lives, between getting saved and being flooded with the Spirit of God. Acts chapter 10, almost there. Now God is spoken to a man called, uh, called Peter. He sends him to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. Can I have a... <gasps> okay, they weren't the people of God. What's happening? Oh, it's all confusing. God is now expanding He's showing Peter that it's not just for the Jewish people. This extraordinary thing is global. It's worldwide. And so he's explaining to them. He's preaching about Jesus the Lamb and Jesus the Baptizer. And then suddenly in verse 44, while Peter was saying these things, he's mid-preach for goodness sake, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. How rude of God. And if the believers... And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. They heard it. They saw it. The gift of the Spirit wasn't just them becoming Christians. They could see something powerful, extraordinary happening to them. Peter was amazed. He was saying, this is amazing. I didn't... And we're going to see in Acts chapter 11, if you read it, that when he's explaining himself to the Jerusalem council, when they say, what on earth are you doing speaking to Gentiles? He says, it's because the same gift of the Spirit came upon them as it did on us. And he's talking about them encountering the living God. Look at this. They're speaking in tongues and extolling God. I love it. John Wesley, he famously talked about when he was filled with the Spirit, and then just this praise language came out of him. And Lloyd-Jones says, how, how can we often try and dull things down and just say, you know, just being filled with the Spirit is often a private internal thing. The Scriptures compel us to think that actually often there's this bubbling over, there's this extolling of God. There's this, I just can't shut up because God is so amazing quality when God encounters us. And finally, Acts 19, one last incident, just a really... Bed it in our hearts. And verse 1, And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, and he found some disciples. He said to them, Oh, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So for him, belief and receiving the Holy Spirit are two different things. And they said, No, we've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptised? And they said, Well, into John's baptism. And Paul said, Well, John baptised with the baptism of repentance telling the world to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. You see, I don't think these guys personally, my personal view is I don't think they were Christians. I think they were God-fearers. They'd heard John, who was saying, God, to the world, you've got to get ready. There's one coming. 
There's one coming, you've got to get ready, repent. And then here we see that Paul picks that up in them and says, oh, you, the repentance is about Jesus. He's the one that you repent to and he forgives you. And they go, great. So they then become Christians, they get baptised in water and then Paul goes, right, lays his hand on them and Holy Spirit ignition time, the Spirit falls on them. That's the language, he falls on them and they speak in tongues and they prophesy. So once again, in the early church, we see this amazing double whammy. Yes, forgiveness, but also the glorious outcoming of the Spirit upon his people. We see it again and again. And you may be sitting here thinking, well, you know, I've seen some element of this in my life. The invitation in these days is this, is that no matter where you feel yourself on that scale, is that as true, if you're a Christian here today, is that the confidence that in just two or three moments as we stand is that God the Holy Spirit is going to fall in this place. I don't know how else God could compel us to believe that. I don't know what else he could do to convince us. And Luke 7, sorry, Luke 11, Jesus says, if you who are evil, nice, you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your heavenly Father know and love to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? We, I love the phrase, this is all, Jesus talks about this is the promise of the Father. Think about that phrase. This isn't a promise, this is the promise. And it's not the promise of a Father, this is the promise of the Father. Do you see that? And he knows that often we can approach God a little bit fearful. But this is described as the promise of the Father. No matter what your father was like, he wouldn't have been perfect. But today, we're going to approach our heavenly father saying, do you know what? I'm coming because I'm thirsty. And in John 7, you said, all who are thirsty, come to me and drink. As it was read earlier, don't sit there passively. Come to me. Knock. Is Jesus glorified? He is so risen and glorified, it's untrue. Acts 2 verse 39 says, the promise of the Father is for you and your children and for all who are far off and all that he calls to himself. If you're a Christian here today, you are called by God. The Holy Spirit called you out of darkness into glorious light. And there is amazing, glorious, ongoing invitation by God. Who is a little bit thirsty for something in the presence of God? Who is a little bit hungry? Wow, you're on fire, guys. Let's stand, shall we? Thank you. If I can ask Jeff just to tinkle on the guitar. Let's focus our wonderful hearts on God. There's, just believe even now, there's been an invitation that's been sounding out. If you know Jesus today as your saviour, if you don't, if you're here and you're a non-Christian, you're just looking in, today is the day when you can come to know the living God. You might have picked up that this isn't about a little you know, changing of political parties. You know, this is about encountering the living God. And as the Bible says, we need to repent. We enter into this experience through repentance. If you're a Christian here today, God invites us today. Don't worry about the guitar. Let's close our eyes. Let the wonderful Spirit of God just come and draw close. Oh, even now. Right now, if you are even a little hungry, I urge you, urge you, Jesus is alive. 
He is glorified. He is risen in splendor. And he wants to pour out his amazing spirit here today. Right now, you just ask for your own encounter with God. Right now, you just ask. Say, Lord, Lord, I want to I be encountered by you. Every Christian here, I want to encourage you now. You may be someone and you may feel that you know so much of God. But today, the Lord would say, come, come. You've hardly even begun. Right now, the Spirit of God, I believe, is all across this room. Just encourage you right now. Let the wind of the Spirit breathe upon us as a people. I can't make this happen. Hallelujah. This is about you and God. This is about you in faith saying, Lord, I love you. I can see him, even I can see in my heart, even now, the Spirit of God starting to just fall across. For some of you, you haven't extolled God for a long time. I want to say, even now, Jesus, will you pour out your Spirit, Lord? Let's, let's lift our voices, guys. Let's throw off Britishness. Let's throw off a, a passivity. You ask for the wonderful presence of God. You ask now for the drenching of the Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we love you. We extol you. We make much of you. We need your power, Lord. We need your boldness. We need the measure of God. We love you, Lord. We love you, God. We honour you. We honour you, Lord. We thank you for your power that changes everything. We thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Come, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Lord. Earnestly rewards those who earnestly seek Him. We seek You, Lord. Oh, Lord, we love You. Hallelujah. Sets the prisoners free. His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Lord, fill this place with joy, Lord. We, we say Your promise, Lord. You are the baptizer as well as the Lamb. You are the risen and ascended, glorified one. Pour out your Spirit all across this room. Pour out your Spirit. Pour out your Spirit, Lord. We crave you. We, re- we humbly ask for the presence of the living God. Come, Lord. Thank you, 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 Lord. Just worship Him. Worship the Lord. Worship Jesus. He loves you so much. Oh, Lord, we love you, Jesus. Risen and ascended one. Risen and ascended Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus.